Christy and I uh, returned from Haiti about three months ago. I was uh, convicted or called, felt something that I should start a series about ministry to the poor. Um, and I, I, as you know, I teach about once a month. That's about all I can handle. And uh, uh, a couple of months ago, we started this series on reach out. And it's to investigate how we as a church and as households and as individuals could best respond to poverty, to the needs around us. And the first two messages focused on the biblical mandate to minister to the poor. But that raises the question, what is poor? And a thought that never occurred to me until I started reading about this is that the way we define poverty can affect our goal and therefore our whole approach to ministry. On its face, poverty may seem like what one judge said about obscenity. He said, you know, I can't really define it, but I sure know it when I see it. Uh, And while that may be true in some ways, I've come to the conclusion that it certainly is not literally true because we don't always see or recognize poverty or at least what it means to the poor to be poor. Much of Europe was devastated by World War II. And so the World Bank was established to finance the reconstruction of that ravaged continent. Uh, And it worked pretty well. Uh, It seemed to put back together the infrastructure needed and to get those countries back on their feet and started toward recovery. So after that, the World Bank reasoned, well, it worked well in Europe, so let's start helping the poor countries of the world. Uh, lending on generous terms to encourage economic growth and poverty alleviation. And what they saw in these poor countries was similar to what they saw in post-war Europe. You know, refugees, starvation, lack of infrastructure, poor social services, weak economies. It seemed logical that if you provide for these material deficiencies, problem solved. However, the World Bank soon found out that alleviating poverty in these poor countries is much, much more difficult for some reason. Therefore, after decades of basically failure, in the 1990s, the World Bank did a study in which the question was asked, what is poverty? And they asked, the poor in poor countries. And this study uncovered a whole new perspective to the concept of poverty from which the North American church could greatly benefit. Because of our wealth here, we tend to define poverty in terms of lack of material resources. Food, water, clothing, 
housing, and certainly money. However, while people in these poor countries uh, can mention the lack of resources, in their answers, they tended to characterize their condition in more social and psychological terms like inferiority, shame, humiliation, no real voice, powerlessness, isolation, even depression. Some of the people who have studied the slums and ghettos in the United States have made similar comments about, quote, a profound sense of psychological depression, personal worthlessness, and social despair, leading to a loss of hope and purpose in life. In other words, money does not equal solution. Clearly, from the perspective of the poor anyway, the problem goes beyond things material. If the problem is more than skin deep, perhaps we should change our perspective on the solution. So this raises another question. If throwing money at the problem does not really solve it, what will? A physician has to avoid at least two mistakes. One would be simply treating the symptoms, and the second would be misdiagnosing the underlying disease and prescribing the wrong medicine. And we've got to avoid the same pitfalls in addressing poverty as a church, as a nation, or we will be ineffective or even make things worse for those we're trying to help and perhaps even worse for ourselves. A simple example of this is something of which I am personally guilty. You may have experienced this. Someone comes to the door of your house or the door of your church and needs help with food or perhaps the utility bill or something like that. And frankly, i got to admit, it's so much easier on my conscience and my schedule to simply hand them a few bucks and send them on their way, wish them well. And this has happened a number of times in our neighborhood, in our, in our home. In discussing this, a pastor friend of mine once offered his method of screening these requests. When someone came to his door, he would ask, Do you own a television? Now, this sounds cruel, but this is way back in the days before television was considered a basic necessity of life. Keep that in mind. And if they did... He would say, okay, I will give you cold hard, hard cash for your television. And he said he never had anybody take him up on that offer. So, figured, all right. The first time, one of the gentlemen who would regularly come to our door, the next time he came, I said, I tried this out. And he said, oh, okay. And he left. I figured I'd never see him again. A few hours later, I looked out the window And there he was, walking down the street, lugging a big TV from the opposite direction of where he lived. And to this day, I do not know whose television I purchased. (laughs) Now, uh, if, if I made that offer... Excuse me, if the underlying problem with such a person 
is a lack of self-discipline to maintain steady employment. My gifts or purchases really do more harm than good. It not only reinforces that person's dependence on handouts, but it also helps take away the dignity of using his gifts and talents to provide for himself. In addition, it harms me in that it gives me a false impression, a lie basically, that somehow I'm resolving some at least temporary problem. So, what to do? Well, I and you could tell them, you know, I really don't want to harm you and just send them packing. But, I know and I suspect you know that that would bring some message to your conscience about be ye warmed and filled. And it's just not going to work. Frankly, a better approach might be to develop a relationship with such a person and help him or her to see his own gifts and abilities and try to develop those to avoid having to beg. Now, at the risk of losing some of you at this point, I've got to acknowledge that this approach is fraught with challenges and it appears to be very time-consuming. But, at the same time, I'm reminded of what we studied last month out of Isaiah 58. And if you're not sure what the, the Christian response to poverty should be, just read Isaiah 58, okay? Because in that passage, the prophet is chastising the nation of Israel for their failure to minister to the poor. And then Isaiah gives them the hope of blessing if they'll do these things. And then verse 10, particularly, is translated a number of different ways in different versions. And it says there, if you, one, if you spend yourself, if you pour yourself out, if you draw your soul for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom shall be as the noonday. So the hard question is, with which we all have to wrestle, is spending myself, pouring myself out, drawing out my soul for the hungry, involve anything more than giving a handout? Let me suggest that to properly treat the problem, and like the physician, do no harm, we must start with a sound diagnosis. But for a complex disease like poverty, it requires more than human comprehension. We've got to evaluate the disease in light of the human nature, particularly the sin nature, history and culture, and then ask God to lead us in wise discernment. I'm going to ask over the next few months over these messages that you please be patient We hope to work from the theoretical to the practical, from command, principle, and precept to application. So today, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the nature of reality, kind of a broad topic, okay? To do that, we will start at the very beginning, because as Julie Andrews has told us, that's a very good place to start, all right? While we want to eventually consider 
different worldviews later in this series. Today we want to look at this from our worldview, which begins with the doctrines of creation, the fall, and redemption. In other words, the creator of all reality. And on your sheet there, you may see passages in Genesis 1 and 2 and John 1 and the book of 1 John. And and these passages broadly lay out that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has existed from eternity and is an inherently relational being. You and I are made in the image of God. Therefore, we are inherently relational beings as well. God gave us certain relationships which serve as the foundations of life. When these relationships function as designed, we experience life fully as God intended because we are being what God has created us to be. In Genesis 3, verses 17 and 19, you will see that there, because of Adam's sin, God gave us that four-letter word, work as a necessary part of our reality. It is only by the sweat of our face that we are to receive our daily bread. More specifically, when these foundational relationships work well, people glorify God by working and supporting themselves, their families, and helping others with the fruit of their work. My dad was not a biblical scholar at all, but he typed out on his royal typewriter, one verse, which was 2 Thessalonians 3.10, and he would always pull it out when there was a discussion about welfare back in the 60s, which basically says, if you don't work, you don't eat. It's really pretty simple. It's not rocket surgery. Okay. Now, taking that, If we think about the reality of work in God's economy, and then we think about how most people treat poverty alleviation today, including our federal government, but also a lot of Christian organizations that that fight poverty, we can see, if you think about it, we're headed for a collision or maybe at least some tension that needs to be resolved. Just keep that in the back of your mind. The first foundational relationship from which the others flow is our relationship with God. Some kids are catechized so that they will remember our primary purpose. The reason we were created is to, quote, glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, unquote. Many of you have heard that, I'm sure. We are to serve and worship our Creator through our thoughts, our words, our actions. When we do, a joyful and intimate relationship forms between the Heavenly Father and His children. The next relationship is the relationship with self. Each human life is a unique creation of God with an inherent worth and dignity. As such, we reflect God's being And we, as human beings, are superior to the rest of creation. We also have a great responsibility under God to care for ourselves. And ironically, man is the only creature with the capacity 
to whine and complain about that responsibility and to shift it to others. A biblical psychology focuses on self-acceptance or accepting how God created me rather than self-esteem. The biblical approach is that we are to esteem others better than ourselves in lowliness of mind or humility. And that takes us to the very next relationship. God created us to live and love in relationships with others. To deny and forsake this relationship means not just loneliness, but literally extinction. No man is an island. We are to know, love, and encourage one another. In addition, we're to look out for one another, particularly the weak and vulnerable. Because we are all made in God's image, we value and protect human life. This is one of the distinctions between mankind and the animal kingdom. We each accomplish this in different ways with different gifts. But we each have a purpose that relates to others. Finally, we get our last relationship in Genesis 1. I'm going to read this to you, starting in verse 6. The relationship with the rest of creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Notice the plural, that of the triune Godhead. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Then immediately, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding it. It shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Mankind is to be a steward, protect, subdue, and manage God's creation. Why? Well, certainly to obey Him, and to glorify Him, but also to sustain ourselves through the fruits of our stewardship and our labor. Scripture's filled, if you look through, with references to fruit of the labor and to sowing and reaping and, and, and such concepts. These four relationships form the foundation of reality of life. And as a result of these relationships, humans create culture and engage in certain activities that could roughly be categorized as systems. And these cultural systems include, first, faith. Please remember, everybody's got faith in something. This is how we relate to our ultimate authority and the source of our standards. Another system is that of society, how we we relate to one another. Then there's a system of our economy how we carry out our stewardship of creation and provide for ourselves and others through work and productivity. And finally, there's ruling or government, how we organize to exercise dominion over creation, manage that culture in a way that avoids the injustices of chaos. Now, if you think about it, it won't take long to see how all these affect one another. 
but in particular, one's faith system or worldview. One's faith perspective shapes just about everything else. For example, William Wilberforce was a Christian politician who therefore viewed all people as made in the image of God. And he devoted his life to the elimination of the slave trade in the British Empire, which depended on slavery. This was the story of the movie Amazing Grace, which hopefully many of you have seen. However, what you may not be aware of is that about a hundred years later, and after we in the United States had ended the institution of slavery through our Civil War, there was a movement with a unique method of dealing with poverty. This movement was called eugenics. And its purpose was to solve the problem of poverty by simply cleansing the human race from impurities and defects. The eugenics movement was led by people whose faith was in man's reasoning. One of those participants in the eugenics movement was a lady by the name of Margaret Sanger who became the founder of Planned Parenthood. Sanger believed that for the purpose of racial purification, couples who chose sterilization should be rewarded by the government. Sort of a kinder, gentler method than the Chinese population control. But she went further to call immigrants, blacks, the disabled, and the poor, quote, human weeds, reckless breeders, spawning human beings who should never have been born. Her avowed purpose in, com- in promoting birth was control was to, quote, to create a race of thoroughbreds, which she wrote in the Birth Control Review in 1921. As a devout adherent of her faith, Margaret Sanger created the Negro Project, designed to sterilize unknowing black women and others she deemed undesirables of society. The American eugenics movement spread to others and influenced the whole world. This became clear when that philosophy was used as a defense to justify the atrocities of the Nazis in the Nuremberg war crime trials. Basically, the Nazi defendants, through their lawyers, called the American prosecutors hypocrites for putting them on trial for simply carrying out the philosophy born and raised in the United States. Now wait, you say. Isn't that just a long time ago? Isn't that just some crazy woman who was spouting off? That's not the Planned Parenthood of today. I mean, didn't Planned Parenthood just have a black woman as their executive director? Well, you judge for yourself. The facts are that Planned Parenthood is now the largest abortion provider in America. 78% of their clinics are in minority communities. Blacks make up about 12% of the U.S. population but they account for 35% of the abortions. That result is a reduction of one-third of the African-American population in the last 40 years. 
If the Ku Klux Klan had accomplished that same result, it would have been correctly labeled as genocide. Eugenics was part of the larger progressive movement from a century ago, but it has now resurfaced and dominates our federal government. And the ironic and sad kicker to all this is that Planned Parenthood does its work with over half a billion dollars a year from you and me, the taxpayers. Now, the point here is, getting back on topic, that our faith, our worldview, makes a difference. The nature of our relationships with God, self, others, and creation affect and shape the systems we create. Like the formal systems of government, certainly, schools, businesses, and churches. It also includes our cultural norms, like gender roles, attitudes towards authority, time, and work. However, as dismal as that may be, at the same time, the Word of God tells us that Christ creates and sustains not just the material world, but all things. In Colossians 1, we've studied lately, it says, starting in verse 16, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Therefore, in some mysterious way, Christ plays an active role in sustaining our human systems, and He will redeem or salvage those systems at least until we have totally turned our backs on Him. I want to mention a few things that we can learn from the doctrine of creation and hence our reality and then try to make application. First of all, all of creation matters. These are the things I'd like to get out of this. All of creation matters, including family integrity, governments, business, our culture, personal character. Therefore, when we address the issue of poverty, we must engage and address that entire creation. Secondly, people are multifaceted. So our ministry to them should be as well. Our approach here in the U.S. is to compare the physical state of folks here and abroad. And our, so our, our, our solutions have been primarily focused on material solutions. And while people are physical, they also have spiritual, social, and psychological aspects. So our efforts at poverty alleviation should take all those facets into consideration. Thirdly, we must remember that poor communities, along with their people, their institutions, and their culture, are part of God's creation. Therefore, we should never, never look down upon them. We should treat them the way that Jesus would. With compassion, yes, but also with respect. Now you might say, isn't there a problem with sin here? Well, if there's people involved, yeah. But that's exactly the point. 
We have got to deal with the sin issues of the poor as part of the solution, just like we have to with ourselves. Jesus came to save sinners. And we hope to address the doctrine of the fall next, next month. The doctrine of creation, though, should remind us that we are not bringing Christ to poor communities. Honest. Somehow, He beat us there. Christ has been working in those communities and here since creation. The author of Hebrews tells us that that God appointed Jesus, His Son, heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature and upholds all things by the Word of God's power. Therefore, if we minister in poor communities, we must first discover and appreciate what God has already done there. To do anything less is to deny God His glory. When we walk into an American ghetto or the streets of Haiti, we should be humbled because part of what we see reflects the very hand of God. In the past, I've mentioned the overwhelming complexity of the streets of Port-au-Prince. You know, when I first saw this confluence of trucks and cars, these things called tap-taps overflowing with riders, uh, motorcycles, bikes, people, animals, my mid-American eyes and mind thought, this is crazy. We need to get these people some traffic lights, some stop signs, some lane markers, some rules of the road. You know, a traffic cop or two might help. But, you know, after a few trips through this kind of moving spaghetti, I realized that it actually works pretty well. Yeah, instead of seat belts, they use horns. But you know, I did never saw one driver texting. And they do have cell phones. Because you've got to be really alert just to survive. And, you know, I thought this style of, of driving probably does employ a fair number of people in brake and other car repairs. But you see, my attitude reflected not just a mistaken cultural perspective, but also blindness to what Paul wrote and Mike taught about just last week. Christ is not only God, but He is Creator and He is the Sustainer. He holds all things together. And I've got to remember that He can even hold Haiti together. Yeah, the people there live in squalor. And yes, they have multiple problems. But that's That's why it's clear to me that it could not possibly hold together without Christ working actively throughout time. In fact, when I think about it, in our relatively tidy, orderly, and neat, clean culture, we could not hold together without Him. We've taken way too much credit for our survival. We survive 
despite ourselves, only because of God's grace. Yet, because of our depravity, our culture may be closer to collapse than the Haitian. God may turn us over to our vile affections. And folks, that may be sooner than you think. And if you question that, just read the first chapter of Romans and think about it. Finally, it is true that a majority of the people in poor communities, both here and abroad, may not know that God has been working there, or even who He is. So listen carefully, because this is where we come in. What is our mission? Go and make disciples of all nations. Remember, making disciples or discipleship is a process that starts with evangelism and does not end until the day we die. Therefore, the most important part of any ministry is to introduce the lost, the poor, the neglected of the world to who God is and help them understand and appreciate all that He has been doing from them, for them since the creation of the world. And There are certainly physical and emotional needs to address, but our lesson today, to boil it down, is that we must take all of creation and all of the person into consideration in ministering to them if we're going to be effective. Now, application. As has been mentioned by Bart, the leaders of Lion and Lamb are striving to figure out how, we can, how our body can reach out by doing more than giving to ministries. We have many members who are involved in individual ministries, but we know that there are many others who have not found a place to serve. Today, we started with Young Life, which is a great place to start that discipleship process with young people. Uh, Several weeks ago, I went to their banquet, and they are doing tremendous things. I personally am extremely grateful that my adult kids, who grew up in home educating, uh, you know, pretty much protected environment, have a place to minister. Uh, So I encourage you to see what they're going to do, and consider the other ministries that will be coming up in the future. There are many ways in which to serve. But we hope to get to the point where it will be difficult for anyone here to say, you know, I just don't know what I can do to help. Now, jumping back just a bit, I suspect that those impoverished yet joy-filled Haitian believers that we saw there, while materially poor, are also poor in spirit. What that means, as Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, is that they understand their position before God. As should we. Really, We are or we should all be beggars before a holy and just God. Why? Because each one of us is a sinner. And justice, heard of that? The concept of justice calls for every single one of us to receive a cruel and tortuous eternity. 
Yet the poor in spirit understand that God loves us so much that He offers forgiveness for those very same sins through the work of Christ on the cross and His kingdom of heaven. So as we celebrate the Lord's table today, let's remember that it is the poverty gospel, not the one they call prosperity, that causes even the materially poor to be rich in faith. Because that's the source of true thankfulness, security, peace, and joy. Lord God, thank you for the privilege that you have given us to be here. Lord, we enjoy so much of the abundance of your creation and others, most of the people in the rest of the world do not. And sometimes they have more than we have. But Lord, I pray that as whatever we do in ministering to those who have less, that we would understand that you have made a whole creation. That you have put together and hold together everything. That we're only your tools. And that each and every soul out there is complex. We can't just hand them something. We have to relate and then encourage and love and bring them to you. Father, give us your wisdom in this process. Work in and through each one of us in some way. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.